the older I get, and I've been thinking a lot about age in the last week, just a lot. Also the fact that it's, well, that's the thing. It's September 1st, and this month I turned 40. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the milestone. Some of you passed that a long time ago, so you're saying, yeah, that's nothing. What do you hit your 70s, 60s, 50s? Anyway, I've been thinking about it, but the older I get, <laughs> the more I see age as a blessing. The more I think about it as a good thing. The more I appreciate it because there are things that when I was younger I, I couldn't possibly know that I know now. There are things I've experienced that I hadn't experienced before. And the older I get, especially as I try to understand the Lord and follow after Jesus, literally the better it gets. Now if you haven't had that experience, let me read you a verse, Proverbs 16, verse 31. It tells us a gray head is a crown of glory. Right, Jim? <laughs> a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. Now, you see, in our culture, we don't teach that so much. The moment your head, hair starts to turn, it's coloring time. You know, some of you ladies have no idea what color your hair really is. It's been years since you've even seen it naturally, and that's okay. But we, we have such a push, such a drive for youth in America, for staying young, I believe we've lost sight of the fact that a gray head is a crown of glory and is found in the way of righteousness. With age comes experience. With age comes wisdom. With age comes perspective, especially if it comes about in a life spent pursuing righteousness. And that's why we're all here. To pursue righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that He gives us by His grace. There are many things we cannot see until we've got a good number of years behind us. Now, as some of you know, as I said, I'm hitting 40 this month. And that, that's, it's very odd. I, I never thought I would, honestly. I, I just, I don't know what I thought would happen. Maybe I thought Jesus would call me home before I hit 40. But I'm thinking about age a lot and seeing things differently and they say that hindsight is 2020 vision. Well, as I think I mentioned on Sunday, my vision is 2015. Thank you very much. But I haven't seen this well since high school. And that was over 20 years ago. 22 to be precise. I never thought I'd be 22 years out from high school. Those of you who are 30 years out from high school, 40 years out from high school, more, you're saying, yeah, you don't know yet. But those of you who are just a few years out, it, it will go like this. It will just be gone. I'm telling you, it's going fast. It's going to be gone. I look back and I can't believe what's happened. And I'm seeing things very differently than I did back then. I'm seeing things very differently than I did five years ago, ten years ago. And why am I talking about this? Because I want to begin tonight by considering where Jacob has been. I've come to really love this guy and to love the character of Jacob in Scripture. Now, we talked about that the last 12 or so chapters of Genesis all deal with Joseph. And more time is given to the person of Joseph in Genesis than any other character. And Joseph has the greatest integrity. And Joseph seems to be the purest soul. In fact, until we get to Daniel, he's the only one who, when we read about him in Scripture, we literally don't see sin in his life. Now, of course he sinned. He's human. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But Joseph... What a wonderful man. What an amazing character. And yet, I find myself drawn to Jacob. Over and over, I just keep coming back to him and looking at him, rooting for him. He's kind of been the spiritual underdog. 
You know, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham didn't know any better. And, and we saw him grow in faith and get stronger and better as he went. And Isaac, Isaac looked good. Isaac believed. Isaac walked in his father's footsteps. But along comes Jacob, and it's a rocky path that he takes. But from Jacob's perspective now, as we get into Genesis 46, he's 130 years old. And at age 130, he now can look back on his life. We can look back on his life and we can see some geography, some Jacobian geography, if you will. And that's what I want to start with tonight because there are three geographical locations that sum up Jacob's life. And I think it's important for us to take a moment to stop and to consider these. The first one is the land of Haran. Jacob in the land of Haran. Now he was born in Canaan, stole his brother's birthright there, but very quickly went to Haran where he spent 20 years of his life. And that was a huge and first part of his life. The land of Haran, Genesis 28 through 31, talks about that whole story, that time in his life. It's in Haran that he meets and marries his life's love, Rachel and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. Four wives, one man. You do the math. It's a little scary. In Haran, Jacob has 12 of his 11, or 11 of his 12 sons in rapid succession. 11 boys. 11 boys. And that, that's going to make a man feel strapping, isn't it? In Haran, Jacob gains great wealth. Remember the story of the flocks of speckled sheep and spotted sheep and black sheep and goats. And he, he gains great herds and flocks and becomes a very wealthy man in Haran. And in the land of Haran, in this first geographical location, spiritually... Jacob is God's man living in the flesh. He's God's man living in the flesh. And it's important to understand this. Back before he gets to Haran, as he's traveling there, as he's literally running away from his family in chapter 28 of Genesis, he meets God. And it's at that time that I'm convinced that God saved him. Jacob was given salvation. Jacob began to call on the Lord as his God, not just as his father's God, but as his own God. God got a hold of him there, and though he still has much to learn, though he's still in the flesh, he's a man of God. Are you inherent spiritually? Is that where you might be living right now? Oh, you're saved, you're a believer, you're a Christian, you're a person of God, a man or a woman belonging to the Father, and yet, much of your life is spent living in the flesh. Oh, Rick, can it be that way? Can we live in the, in, in the flesh and be saved? Absolutely, you can. I advise against it. But you can. Because again, salvation is not based so much on works. It is based on grace. Based on Christ's love for us. That is why we are saved. And there are plenty of Christians who choose to live in the flesh. Uh, they're in church every Christmas and every Easter, whether, whether they need to be or not. They're in church maybe more than that. Maybe they even open the Bible, read it from time to time. Maybe even they're as much as an elder in a church. And yet living in the flesh. Living with their emphasis and their faith on fleshly things and the worries of the world. Well, if you happen to be inherent spiritually, maybe it's time to move into Canaan. Which is the second geographical location of Jacob's life. He goes to Canaan, the land of Canaan, Genesis 32 through 35. And in this second location, Jacob wrestles with God. In Canaan, he faces his past, dealing with his brother Esau. In Canaan, he faces the fallout of his own deceit and treachery, his own propensity to lie. Now he sees in his sons. As you may remember, 
his sons murdering a whole group of men in a place called Shechem deceiving them and then murdering them following in the path of Jacob now Jacob hadn't murdered but that's kind of what sin does especially sin in a father's footsteps is the sin then kind of just takes it a step or two or three further but Jacob watches this all go on and at the same time in Canaan he gets a new name he is called Israel governed by God and we watch him flip flop a phrase used for a political character which we won't get into that tonight we've watched him flip flop back and forth between being this Israel governed by God and Jacob still the supplanter back and forth in Canaan Jacob is God's man fighting with his own two fists oh he's no longer living in the flesh as much he's kind of set back from that now he is he's fighting he's a man of strength but it's his strength he knows God is on his side but again like many Christians in the world today Jacob is living believing that God helps those who help themselves he helps those who are strong he helps those who are solid whose church attendance would gain them gold medals if it was anybody judging other than God whose involvement in spiritual things is constant a strong powerful man he is fighting with his fists he is fighting with the Lord and in Genesis 32:28, God even says your name shall no longer be Jacob for is but Israel for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed at this point in his life no longer a man of the flesh he's a man of the fist he's a man of strength a man who is fighting and he reminds me a lot of the church in Ephesus that Jesus wrote to in Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 Jesus said I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men then you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false and you have a perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary you are standing firm and strong but I have this against you Jesus says that you've forgotten something along the way you've left your first love the love but where's the love Jacob in Canaan is a strong man but where's the love are you living in Jacob's Canaan holy sweat hard work handling it all yourself standing firm and strong and scared to death that somebody's going to find out that you don't have it in you frightened that at some point along the way you're going to slip up and the truth about your spiritual character is going to come out are you living in Canaan in your own strength tiring isn't it it's exhausting I know I've spent much of my life there maybe it's time to draw near to go to Goshen and rest and that's the third geographical location of Jacob's life is the land of Goshen Genesis 46 through 50 Jacob goes to Goshen in Egypt of all places gang it takes this crown of gray glory to recognize where his strength comes from to recognize who he belongs to and Jacob does in the land of Goshen in the last 17 years of his life folks I would call it the best 17 years of his life and you'll see that in Jacob things end up very good very good for this man who has struggled and strived with God for all of his life he's provided for in Goshen he is surrounded by now his entire family all of his sons and they have matured 
They have grown up. Judah, you'll notice, has really stepped up and is taking the lead, doing all sorts of good things. Joseph is there. And the other boys, there is a love in this family that was non-existent until Joseph came back into the picture. And this is how Jacob gets to spend the rest of his life with his family. He gets to be reunited with his golden crowned son, Joseph. But best of all, best of all, Jacob shows the greatest the greatest steps of faith that he has showed so far. He's a man of the flesh back in Haran. A man of the fist in Canaan. But now that he's living in Goshen, he's a man of faith. A man of true faith. Of a faith that's living out. As a matter of fact, one step further, he's not a man at all. He's a child. He's a child of faith. I draw great comfort from seeing Jacob at the end of his life seeing how he has matured and grown, it causes me to look ahead to years to come, God willing. It reminds me of verses like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that tells us Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. Jesus is the author. He started the book. He began writing on my heart. He's also the perfecter. He's the one that's going to bring it about. He's going to bring me to that place that I want to be. I mean, I think about the Billy Grahams and the Chuck Smiths of the world, and I look at these guys, and from my vantage point where I stand right now on the crest of 40, I look at them and I say, that'd be cool. I would love to be like that when I'm 60, 65, 70 years old, if I reach that point. And Paul writes in Philippians 1, verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, until the day of Christ Jesus. Not in the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, he's going to keep on perfecting it, honing away, chiseling at you, working at you, and preparing you, drawing you in, and making you more like him. Perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, you may recall in Genesis 45 that it ends with a hopeful Jacob His old eyes looking up for the first time in 20 years. His heart revives. He hears the news that Joseph is alive. He sees the wagons coming. And he says, my son is alive. I'm going to go down and see him before I die. And now for the first time again in 20 years, 22 years to be precise, Jacob's heart has hope. And he comes alive. But what does he do? What's the first thing that Jacob does, that Israel does, when he hops on the cart and heads to Egypt, does he go as fast as he can? Oh, I've got to see my son. My son Joseph, I can't wait. Let's get there. Come on. Leave the stuff. Let's just go. No, the first thing he does, he stops, he pauses, and he worships. Verse 1 of chapter 46. And I'm going to pause for a moment to pray. Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, speak to us and teach us tonight. Write your words on our hearts and in our minds and our thoughts. Send us away, God, deeper in you, nearer to you, closer to your heart than when we came in. God, I I pray for things that I'm not capable of, none of us are capable of, that we would actually walk out of here deeper in spirituality and in love for you. But these are things, Father, that you by your spirit are capable of doing easily and that your word which does not come back to you empty is capable of doing in our hearts so do this tonight Father take us one step
closer to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. Beersheba, by the way, where there was a suicide bombing attack just this last week. Two buses, 15, I think, or 16 people murdered again in Beersheba. It's strange, again, to see the things in Scripture that are happening, not necessarily happening, but the places, the same locations. Well, Israel set out with all he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Jacob, before going to Egypt, stops. He waits in worship. He pauses in praise. He stops to seek the counsel of God. And I need to point this out, and you may already know this, but be reminded of this. The counsel of God often comes in worship. God often speaks to us in times of worship. And you want to know how to listen, how to hear the voice of the Father. One of the best ways, best places that that occurs is during in worship. This is what Jacob is doing. He is offering sacrifices. He's worshiping at the altar that Isaac had set up. And as he worships God, as he's in this place of praise, God speaks. He reads his heart. Jacob, Jacob, go on down. I'll go with you. I'll be with you. Daniel received the greatest revelation given in the Old Testament when he was in worship. Daniel chapter 9 verse 2. He said, I, Daniel, observed the books... In the books, the numbers of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. And so I gave my attention to the Lord to, to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And you can read the rest of Daniel chapter 9 on your own time and see what happens. Daniel, deep in worship, focusing, praising, glorifying God. And God comes to him, sends an angel with the most important message of the entire Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9. An amazing prophecy. John received the greatest New Testament prophecy, the greatest New Testament revelation while he was worshiping. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now you may not hear a trumpet. That may not be how God speaks to you. And as we worship tonight... You may not have heard anything blasting in your ears. You may not have heard much more than a still, quiet voice. You may not have heard God tonight. I'm not saying that by worshiping guaranteed you're going to hear Him every single time. But you're going to have your chances. God speaks to us, brings counsel in worship. I think I've shared with a few of you that several years, well, several years ago now, two years ago I guess it was, when Cheryl and I were vacationing in California, that it was during worship that God gave me an answer to a very difficult question I was raising at the time. A question about what I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to go, what He wanted in my life and in my family's life. And as clear as crystal, as clear as day, Cheryl and I were given the answer, stay put, I'm going to let you know. And it wasn't for another year that He let us know. And when He let us know, He really did. But gang, it's in worship that the counsel of God becomes clear. 
Now you may ask, ask what would have happened if uh, Israel had just set out and not stopped in worship. They'd just gone on down to Egypt just to go be with Joseph. What would have happened? Probably nothing. Except that Joseph, or Jacob, sorry, Jacob probably would always have wondered if God was going with them. Jacob would have had to ask the question, should I have gone down to Egypt? Remember what happened when Abraham went down to Egypt? That wasn't good. And of course then when Isaac went down to Egypt, or wanted to go and started to go, and God said, don't go. Now should I go? Should I not go? Should I stay? Should I go? What should I do? And he knows beyond the shadow of a doubt because he has listened, he has heard from God. Two promises that God gives in in verse 4, I will go down with you and I will bring you up again. And if those sound at all familiar to your heart as a Christian, they should. Because Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 20, "I I am with you always. I will go down with you. I will walk with you in your Egypt, in the world. I'll be with you. We wonder sometimes, God, where are you? I feel so alone. He says, I'm right here. I will go with you. I will not leave you alone. It's the promise of Jesus. But he also says, I will surely bring you up again. Now, if you only had those two promises to cling to in your life, would that be enough? It would for me. To know of his constant presence and to know of his promise to bring me up again. John 6.40, he said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And it's in worship when these promises bring life and joy to our hearts. It's in worship that we hear from the Lord and we are altered. Jacob goes to the altar and there he is altered by the Lord. So seek him in worship. Listen to him in worship. God likes to speak when his people are praising. Verse 5. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and, and they came also to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants, literally his seed, with him. His sons and his grandsons with him and his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants he brought with him into Egypt. The whole family. The whole gang. Everybody went. Everybody is saved from the famine. The whole entire family. Not just a few. The whole group. All of his descendants. And I've said this before and I will continue to say this parents. Jesus' desire is to save entire families. It's what he wants. He doesn't just want to save you. He's not just content with saving your husband or your wife or one or maybe two of your kids if you have more. He wants to save entire families. I love Acts chapter 16 verse 31. When the jailer, the Philippian jailer was asking Peter, what, what should I, how can I be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And that night, the Philippian jailer was saved, him and his household. And in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and all of his household was saved. Not just the man, but his whole family. In Acts 16, we see the woman Lydia and her entire household saved. Not just the woman, but her entire family. That is the heart and the passion of Jesus. Now some of you may say, it's too late for me. My kids are already out of the house. They have already rejected. They already don't believe. They're already walking out in the middle of Rick's Bible study. (laughs) They'll never be back. That was it. (laughs) Yes, later. 
I, I sorry, I couldn't resist. I just couldn't. It was just too. It was too. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> listen, parents. Jesus wants this more than you do. More than you want your kids to be saved. Jesus wants your kids to be saved. Don't ever forget that. King, there are two things we can do, by the way, as parents. And they have to do with expectation and they have to do with example. Expectation, I I just have to ask and keep asking and I will ask over and over, do you expect your kids to be saved? Do you expect your kids to seek the Lord? Do you expect them to know Him? I was talking with a friend just this last week and uh, dealing with the whole political season debate, which is really starting to tick me off, and if you want to know why, I'll tell you afterwards. But looking at the two candidates for president and talking about his child, now his child is is quite young, younger than Hayden, talking about his child and and saying, yeah, I I just, what I'm trying to do right now is I'm trying to teach my, my child to be a critical thinker. And I thought for a moment, and I said, you know, I wasn't even a critical thinker until I was out of high school. <laughs> I mean, I was hardly even done playing with Legos by then, okay? Now, maybe I was a little behind other people. But I'll tell you what a five, six, seven, eight-year-old child needs. They don't need critical thinking. They need right thinking. They need a foundation. They need something solid so that they can say, this is truth. This is right. This is wrong. It's black. It's white. The gray will come later. It will. They'll understand later that they've got to make critical decisions, but at least by then they will be equipped with some solid evidence, some solid truth, some solid foundation of right and wrong. What do we expect out of our kids? We're in a country that thinks our kids should just be able to do whatever they want. Let the child decide. What does the child know? Nothing. Except maybe his little five years worth of experience. Parents, you need to make decisions. For your kids. You need to raise them up. Have some expectation that they will know the Lord. That that is what your family does. And those of you who don't have kids, and I'm looking at Selena out of the corner of my eye here. When you do, right now, plan to have expectations that they will know the Lord. This is not an option. My kid is going to know the Lord. You might say, well, what about free will? Yeah, there is free will. But assume that they're going to walk with Jesus. Lay that foundation. I was raised as a child going to church every Sunday. Yeah, at some point I got tired of it and had to work through that. But my assumption from early on, as far back as I can remember, is I'm a Christian. It's just what I am. It's who I am. And I'm so thankful that that was embedded in me early on. Yeah, I grew up and came to a place where I actually owned that faith. But for the years and years and years that my parents handed me that faith, I am eternally thankful expectation Joshua put it this way he said as for me and my house we will serve the Lord Joshua could just as easily have said as long as you're living under my roof you're going to serve the Lord you will follow the Lord because that's what our family does when you're out from under my roof well then you can think critically but man as long as you're here I'm going to keep your feet on this path expectation Well, let me ask you, do you think Joshua was afraid of pressuring his kids? I think Joshua was worried that maybe he pushed them too far when he said, as for me and my house, this is where we're headed? Of course not. Expectation. 
But again, Rick, you may say, my kids are out of the house now, beyond my control, you're wasting my time. Can we get on to the next verse? Let me just tell you, they're not out of your control yet. They are not beyond your influence. Example. There is expectation, there is also example. She's not here tonight, so we can talk about her. Um, Annette Haggard has two sons, Dennis and Perry. And for a long time, Annette talked with Cheryl and I about her sons and about their faith and about where they were and where they were not and her concerns for them. For 40 years of Annette's life, she wasn't a Christian at all. She didn't believe. She walked different roads. And it's only been in the last five years that she has come to Christ. But in the last five years, I've watched her influence her sons. The last two or three times they've come into town, we've had their whole family over. And sitting and talking with Dennis and Perry this time, both of them ex- expressing faith in Jesus. Both of them talking about their churches, where they are actively involved now. And I just was looking at Annette going, she has no idea what she's done. All she did was follow Jesus. All she did was live for Him. And it spilled over as she would talk to her sons. Example. And her sons now are walking that path. It is hard to dismiss the changed life of your own parents. Parents still have influence. Jacob was saved and he took all of his descendants with him, his whole entire house. Now look, verse 8, at the impact, the impact of Israel. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went into Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jacob and Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Gohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur and Onan, that was a bad story, and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, and Puva, and Yob, and Shimron, and stop right there just for a moment. For our study tonight, I'm not going to go into what every single name means, as I've done in the past, and look at all that. It's a fascinating study, and I encourage you to do it on your own. But I do want to pick out a couple of interesting notes here. And the first one is here in verse 13, and it's this son of Issachar. This son's name is Yob, or Job. Now, Job is thought to be the oldest book in the Bible, even older than the Pentateuch. It's believed by many scholars and those who have studied these things that it is truly the oldest book. And scholars also believe, and I agree, that Moses authored, the human author, the the Pentateuch, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Many people also believe that Moses authored, human authored, the book of Job. Wrote the book of Job. Wrote about Job. The question is, how would Moses know about Job? And how would he know of Job? Now chronologically, and I didn't do this, but other people have, this Job right here, this Job, the son of Issachar, he would have been around 55 years old, or in his 50s in the time of Moses. He would have been a contemporary of Moses. It's entirely possible that this Job was part of the children of Israel, who then wandered. Now, if that's the case, and if this Job is the one and the same Job of Scripture, he would have been there with Moses. And to those scholars who have taken the time to figure all this out, I have to thank them for a job well done. Verse 14. (laughs) The sons of Zebulun, Sirad and Elon and Jaleel, these are the sons of Leah. And you're thinking right now, did he do that whole thing just for that joke? No, I just wanted you to see Job there. 
These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, and his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Haggai and Shuni and Esbon and Eri and Erodi and Areli. And if you ever need names for your children, there's just a wealth of wonderful names here. The sons of Asher, Imna and Ishba and Ishbi and Bariah and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. And these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. And she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. Now the sons of Jacob's wife Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin, verse 21, Bela and Becker and Ashbel and Gera and Naaman, Ehi and Rosh, Muppin and Huppin, who went on later to do shows and movies and all kinds of things, the Muppin show, and Ard. Now, verse 21 is another thing we just got to pause for a moment and look at here. Benjamin. Benjamin has the biggest nuclear family in this extended family of Israel. He's got ten kids. Now, the problem is, at the time of coming into Egypt here, heading into Goshen, Benjamin at best would have been 25. Maybe 22. Ten kids by the age of 22? That's a lot of kids for a 22-year-old. I was 24 when we had Corey. It totally freaked me out. I will never forget the time that I was at home alone for the first time with Corey. Cheryl had to just run to the store. And she's telling me, you can handle this. You can do this. He's taking a nap. He's up in his crib. And it's quiet in the house. And I'm going, I don't know. I don't know, alone in the house with a baby. I don't know if I can do this. 24 years old. She goes to the store and within five minutes he's screaming bloody murder. Thanks a lot for that, by the way. I still have not gotten over it. I still have nightmares about it. This little, you know, one foot long Corey just screaming, ah! And I'm screaming, ah! You know, and we didn't even have cell phones. I couldn't get a hold of Cheryl. She walks in the door, and I'm like, here. 22 years old, and he had 10 kids. How is that possible? Well, it is possible. It's possible in many ways. Um, though it's a challenge, if you look at it, he, he may have had. I, well, I th- I'm thinking Muffin and Huffin have got to be twins. <laughs> because you're not going to make that same name. You're not going to do that nine months apart. Maybe on a whim. Maybe the party went a little late that night. I don't know. But a couple of twins there. Ard. There's a great name. Possibly there were twins or, or triplets in the family. Possibly, though we don't have any listing of it, Benjamin had more than one wife because that was not uncommon at the time. But be that as it may, he had ten sons, and it's amazing as he comes into Egypt. Verse 22. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, and there were 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim. It's funny, the sons of Dan, but there's only one name, but that's, you know, that's just the way they wrote it. The sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, and Guni, and Jezer, and Shillam. And these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban, Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob, and there were seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were, check this out, 66 persons in all. The number six in the Bible is the number of a man, the book of Revelation tells us. It's the number of incompleteness, the number of imperfection. And it's just interesting for me that there were 66 of them before 
they joined up with Joseph. But look, verse 27, And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt, which would be Joseph's two sons, and Joseph and Jacob added to the 66 were 70. And these 70, folks, are the people of Israel. That first grouping, that first gathering that, that comes into Goshen, 70. It's a complete picture. As we think of the number 7, automatically comes to mind. But 70 in Scripture has another meaning to it. A very powerful and a very obvious meaning as well. See if you can figure this out. Numbers 11 verse 16 says that there were 70 elders over Israel. 2 Chronicles chapter 36 verse 21 tells us there were 70 years of captivity for Israel. Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 tells us that 77 Shavuah weeks were determined for Israel. Luke chapter 10 verse 1, Jesus sent out 70 witnesses to preach the kingdom to Israel. 70 in scripture is the number of Israel. It is the number of the Jews. It is the number that constantly is used and connected in, in various ways with the people of Israel. So as you see that number, you will see it connected many times over and again to the people of Israel. Well, verse 28 tells us, Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And this is just awesome to me. We talked about the geography of Jacob. That he began his life in Haran and then he moved on into Canaan and finally to, to Goshen. And it was in Goshen that Jacob's life was good. It was in Goshen that Jacob finally found peace. Finally is the true man of God, the complete man of God that we had always hoped he could be. In Goshen. In Goshen. And Goshen means to draw near. It is in the land of Goshen that Jacob completely draws near to the Lord. But watch this. This is interesting to me. Which son does he send ahead to draw near first? Look at verse 28. Which son is it? It's Judah. Does anybody remember what Judah's name means? Praise. Judah means praise. What we see here is a picture of drawing near via praise. But that is how we draw near to God. Again, we're back to this concept, this idea of worship. That praise goes forward. Worship draws us near. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It's not just a comment about, you know, singing as you're coming in. It's this is how you enter his courts. This is how you come before God. Again, I don't know how a person can, can come close to God, can draw near to God and keep themselves from worship. And avoid worship. Oh, Rick, worship, that's, that's my whole life and it's kind of everything. You know, I, I worship God just, you know, I'm driving down the street and I worship God in the way I do my work. Yeah, I understand that. But you also worship God in those times that are set apart for absolute praise. Where you're not just honoring Him with your job or with the way you're treating your family or with how you're acting. But you are purely and simply honoring Him. Hands raised, songs to Him. Hearts bow before Him. And in praise we come before the Father. In praise we draw near to the Lord. Worship is so vitally important in what we do as believers. Don't sell it short. God has called us out to be a people of praise to His name. I ran across this verse and I've just got to share it with you because it's, it's kind of humorous but it's also so poignant in the way it's written. Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 11 <laughs> says, for as the waistband clings to the waist of a man, 
Got the picture? As a waistband clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole household of Israel and the whole household of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. That's how close God wants to be. He wants us clinging to Him, like a waistband to the waist of a man. Some of those waistbands may be tighter than others, but they may be for me, God says, a people for renown, for praise, and for glory. That's why these people are my people, to the praise and the glory of my name. But, Jeremiah says, they did not listen. And that is tragic. Israel was created to bring glory to God's name, but they did not listen and brought shame instead. And the question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to be a people of praise, bringing honor and glory to His name? Are we listening? I want to encourage you, and just stop for a moment and think about this. I want to encourage you to draw near to God in praise. Not being a people who go through the motions once or twice a week. The, the worship is that you show up and we do the worship thing and then we get on to that and then we're out here. But to be a people of praise. A people who live in praise. Chuck Smith wrote the following and, and Russ sent this to me today. It's been an interesting week for me in many ways. Um, it's been a week where I, I, see, I see a picture of reconciliation in my life with, with someone very close to me and, and, I'm, and it's a good thing. And those of you who know me well and know what the, some things have been going on in the past year, well, you know what, I'm just going to tell you something here and, and um, yeah, just tell you. I haven't really talked about this a whole lot since we started the bridge. But you need to understand, some of you who especially live on Whidbey Island and, and weren't involved with Fidalgo Community Church, which was the church that I worked at in Anacortes before I started the bridge, many of you may not be aware that when I left there, though the vision was clear and I came here because God called, that it was a difficult leaving, that there was a strain, that there was a strain that, that has continued. Now you need to know and I can say before you and before the Lord that for the last year I've spent time and time again seeking reconciliation. Seeking restoration of relationships. And, if, and I, I'll say this honestly, I don't want to take a whole lot of time on it tonight. If any of you have questions for me and you want to know, what do you mean? I'm not going to gossip, but I will tell you from my perspective um, more of what happened. But here's the bottom line. And I've been thinking about this, and again, I just had a, a great conversation literally yesterday for two and a half hours with my brother, who's the pastor there, and it's been the best conversation we've had in months, and I am praising God and hopefully going to be getting together with him next week, and things are moving forward in restoration. And that's, that's what the church is supposed to be about. But it's interesting, Russ sent me an email today, because uh, I had shared that. He, he knew about this, and the email is from a book that all of our elders are currently reading called Living Water. Uh, they all have copies of that and they're going through it. It's by Chuck Smith. If you don't have that book, if you haven't read it, it's the best treatment of spiritual gifts and of the Holy Spirit and how that all works of any book I've ever read. So I'd highly encourage it, Living Water by Chuck Smith. But here's a quote from it. And, and Russ, again, emailed this to me and I ended up throwing away my notes and reprinting them so I could have this in here. I wanted you to hear this tonight. He writes, we shouldn't be pitted against one another. We should be united in our effort to bring people into the kingdom of God and out of the kingdom of darkness. 
The real enemy is Satan, and it is our task to bring men and women out of this kingdom and into the glorious kingdom of God. Once that occurs, and listen to this, it doesn't really matter if these babes in Christ affiliate with us or join someone else who loves the Lord. Now I have this in bold. It should never be our purpose to try and get people to come to our church. Did I hear Pastor Rick quote that correctly? Yeah. And let me say it again. It should never be our purpose to try to get people to come to our church. Well, what then? He goes on and says, Our task is to bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and surrender to His will. That's what it's about. And when the church can understand that, And even if we as a fellowship can get our arms around that and live that way, then whether someone attends the bridge or any other church is entirely beside the point. People will come to a knowledge of Jesus and be saved. And that's why, that's why we're here. Do I want people to come to the bridge? Absolutely. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't invite anyone. Please invite them, but not so that they become a member here. That's why we don't even have a membership. Invite someone so that they can hear the word of the Lord. Invite someone so that they can see Jesus in the people who are here. Invite someone so that they can listen to and experience the praise and the glory that goes to God. And by doing so, their lives will be altered and changed. That's what it's about. It's not empire building. It is kingdom building. And there is a huge, huge difference. There are many churches in this world. Many Christians who will be saved but who are about the business of building empires, bigger buildings, bigger churches, as opposed to building the kingdom, one person at a time. And it is my heart and my hope and my prayer that the bridge will be a church, a fellowship, that is simply about bringing glory and praise to God and people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, His Son. If I've confused you at all by any of that, talk to me afterwards. Verse 29. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen. Again, Goshen meaning draw near. To meet his father Israel as soon as he appeared before him. And listen to this. He fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Can you even imagine that reunion? How awesome, how dramatic, how emotional it must have been. The Bible goes on and says literally a long time. He just wept and wept and they hugged and they held. I mean, great heaving sobs of joy as finally Jacob is reunited. 130-year-old Jacob reunited with his son. His son who he thought was dead but is now alive. And it brings to mind to me immediately two other reunions. I wonder, in the first reunion, the post-resurrection reunion of the Father and the Son, of Jesus and God the Father, what was that like? I hope it's on video because I want to see it. I mean, I hope there's some record of it when we get to heaven. We can watch it on the widescreen when Jesus came home and did the son throw his arms around the neck of the father and did they weep and laugh and rejoice together. You see in Jesus' life, and it's interesting, John 16, 28, he's already on the night before he's betrayed, the night before his death, listen to his words. He says, I came forth from the father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the father. 
He's got God on his mind. He has Dad on his mind. He can't wait to go home. Does Jesus want to go through the crucifixion? Absolutely not. But he knows just the other side of that trauma. He's going to see his Father again. And then there was that horrible separation on the cross where Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Separated by sin as he held the world's sin on his back. But after his death on Resurrection Sunday, as he appeared to Mary Magdalene, he said to her, listen to these words, John chapter 20, verse 17, Go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. I'm going home. Don't be jealous, you're going to be there soon. But I am going back to the Father. And how does the Bible describe Jesus' position today, currently, right now? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. Having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to Him, Jesus reunited with the Father. In the same way, Joseph and Jacob are reunited, Father and Son. But there's another reunion. And it's the one I'm looking forward to, and that's the post-rapture reunion of the family of God. That great day when the ultimate family reunion will take place. The, the Gilmores have a family reunion out here, what, every year? Is that an annual thing? And they bring out extra porta potties which is a good thing because I don't know their house could handle it. And they, you saw it. There were several uh, RVs out there on the lawn by the, by the pond. And they have that annual reunion. This is going to blow any family reunion you've ever been to off the charts. Pause for a moment and think about people, if you have them, family members, friends, in Christ who went on before you. Who you haven't seen in a while. Who you haven't even missed because we kind of go about our daily lives. You're going to see them. It's going to be wonderful. Paul says, those who died in Christ, they're going to resurrect first. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, he said, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. And you know what's wonderful about that reunion? As great as it will be to be seeing all the people in the clouds and gathering together with all those who have gone on before, for a brief moment, I think we're going to look at each other and go, Hey, hey, hey! And then we're going to see Jesus. And we're going to go, Hey... He's the one we all wanted to see. That's the reunion to look forward to. And Jacob says here, he says, Now, verse 30, let me die, since I have seen your face that you are still alive. He's not saying, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm checking out now. I'm really tired. need to go home. He, just, he says, now I can die. Now I can die in peace. Now my life, now my life is peace. Now I can die. And by the way, that's the best way to find peace in the arms of the son. Verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I'll say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were with me in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, this is Joseph speaking, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live. Joseph says that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd, note this, every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. This is interesting. In Egypt of Joseph's day, there was a caste system. Literally a seven levels of caste in society. Shepherds were on the bottom level. They were in literally the dung heap. They were the untouchables. They were the people that nobody wanted to be. 
They were the ones who had the job that nobody wanted. I think about growing up in Southern California, the strawberry pickers, who we would constantly see along the side of the road. And they were all Mexican, and they were all picked on, and they were all made fun of. And they were all doing the jobs that the Southern Californians were too good to do. Now they work in all the fast food restaurants because the teenagers in Southern California no longer even want to work there. The untouchables, the people who really aren't of us. And that's the way the Egyptians looked at shepherds. Now, by the way, in saying that, I didn't buy that. I didn't believe it. And I don't to this day. But if it is true then that the shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptian, why is it that Joseph is counseling his brothers to tell Pharaoh we're shepherds? Is that a resume you really want to float in this land? This is what I do. A couple of things to note here. Number one, he tells them to share this with Pharaoh to separate Israel's family. Simply people knowing that they are a family of 70 shepherds would make people go, okay, you can have that area over there. Just don't live next door to us. To separate Israel's family, to set them apart. We talked about this on Sunday. Holiness. What the Egyptians saw as an abomination, as loathsome, God saw as holiness. Genesis 46, back in verse 3, said, I'm the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? For I will make you a great nation there. And how does he do it? By setting them apart. By making them holy. By separating them out. But the world that we live in today views holiness very differently. It's a drag, a bother, a bummer. In other words, it's loathsome. I mean, truly, to try and pursue holiness in your life today, is that something that that people say, hey, cool, you're trying to be holy? I guess we're not going to go see that movie tonight. (laughs) Bummer. Holiness is loathsome in the world. Folks, holiness is the act of separation as opposed to assimilation. And Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The Bible is clear. You've got two options, separate or assimilate. Why do I want to pursue holiness? Because if I don't, I will pursue assimilation. I will be more like the world. Like the story I heard of a man standing out in front of a baseball game wearing a big sign that says, God loves you, John 3.16. And people going by and some people laughing at him and some, most people just ignoring him. And someone saying one day, why do you do that? It makes no difference to any of these people. And he said, yeah, but it makes a difference to me makes a difference to me. Holiness, separation as opposed to assimilation. And so Joseph wants his family separated. God wants Israel separated. But number two, Joseph wants them to share this so that he can secure Israel's future. Joseph's a smart guy. And he has a job in mind for his family. Look at verse 1 of chapter 47. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What's your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. 
Now therefore please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Put them in charge of my livestock. They've got an automatic job. Now not only do they have all of their sheep and goats to look after, but all of Pharaoh's as well because the Egyptians don't want the job. So they have a place to live. They've been given a job. They are secure in their future. But it's interesting to me just to note that Israel is a family of shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. His sons, all shepherds. The Jewish people are deeply rooted in that history, in the business of shepherding. And as you well know, the Bible has much to say about being shepherds. And about shepherds in general. The Bible has much to say about it, and so do I, but I'm not going to tonight because we're running out of time and I have a couple other things to tell you. But this could be a, a great personal study if you go through and look at shepherding and shepherds in the Bible because God's perspective of shepherds is very different than that of the, the Egyptians who thought they were loathsome. 1 Peter 2.25 tells us, For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Psalm, the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. God equates himself, describes himself as shepherd. Well, the sons of Israel, like their fathers before them, remain shepherds in Goshen, tending Pharaoh's flocks. But now, watch, and this is the last thing I want you to see. Watch old man Jacob closely here because this is very cool. Verse 7. Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, um, get this picture. Joseph comes in, old Jacob, and he's limping. Remember, Jacob's limp. 130 years old on his staff, comes wobbling in. And before Pharaoh can say anything, before he can stand up in lordly fashion, Jacob blesses him. Now, I think Pharaoh at this point was taken aback a little bit. And we see this in verse 8, because Pharaoh said to him, How many years have you lived? How old are you? (laughs) You're blessing me? Verse 9 says, Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning, listen, are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. You see something in this man. My life, he says, my life doesn't live up to that of my father Isaac. My life is nothing like my grandfather Abraham. My life has been hard. My life has been a struggle. This is a very different Jacob than the one who struggled with God, than the one who stole his brother's birthright. This is an old, gray-crowned Jacob who has learned a thing or two in his life. And he describes his life as a man of great humility. But in verse 10 it tells us, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh again, and went out from his presence. And though he is a man of great humility, he also blesses Pharaoh as one with great authority. Great authority. Jacob has the authority of God on his side. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 7 tells us, But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The one who gives the blessing is the great one. And here before the greatest man alive at the time, the highest ruler in all of the world, Pharaoh of Egypt, 
Jacob stands taller with greater authority because he blesses him. And I believe we see here that Jacob is finally the man God wanted him to be. 130 years old, but this little old shepherd has a greatness about him which far surpasses the world leader of his day. Jacob is truly God's complete man. For some 20, 25 years now, he has lived off the bitterness of sorrow, of losing his son, but not anymore. For the final 17 years of his life, Jacob will be living off the sweetness of joy. His family is what it should be. His hopefulness and the promises of God restored in Goshen of all places. Jacob draws near, resting in faith. Again, with a gentle gray crown of glory around his head. Proverbs 16.31, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. And let me share this with you. Righteousness is the difference between a bitter old man and one who wears a crown of glory. Righteousness is the difference. Isaiah 51 verse 1 tells us, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord... Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. You want righteousness? You look to the rock. You want to be a righteous person before God? Then you look to the quarry where God works on us and chisels at us. The rock is Jesus. Well, in verses 11 through 26, there's a fascinating section of Scripture that we could easily just pass right by, easily miss. Just as Joseph is an amazing type of Jesus, so this section of chapter 47 is an interesting parallel to the time when the shepherd will lead. And you remember the parallel of Joseph to Jesus, that we've seen so much in Joseph's life that he is a picture, a type of Jesus He's rejected by his brothers like Jesus. Rescued his brothers in the midst of famine and tribulation like Jesus will. Recognized by his brothers as Jesus will be recognized by Israel. And returning to present his brothers to the king of all the land as Jesus will do. The parallel is perfect. But there's one more parallel worth looking at. Joseph was first a shepherd tending to the sheep of Israel and now he is a ruler tending to all the people of Egypt and the world. And this parallel speaks of another shepherd, another ruler, tending to the world in a time yet to come. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11 tells us, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And the rest of chapter 47 here shows us some great and amazing insights into the time of the great shepherd's rule over the earth. That time that the Bible refers to as the thousand year reign of Christ. We call it the millennium. But you'll have to come back Sunday to hear the rest of that story. Let's pray. Father, as we sang tonight and as we saw in Jacob and all the children of Israel, I just want to go out of here praying that you will cause us to draw near. To draw near to you. To seek the righteousness that only comes from looking to the rock. To be a people who bring praise to your name. God, we mess it up. We are so good at messing it up. We are so good at performing unrighteous acts. 
and praiseless deeds. That seems to be so much of our nature. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you will blow through this place like a wind. That you will breathe into us a spirit of righteousness and a joy and a praise. That we will live out before you the lives you've called us to. And while, Father, I can pray for other churches, and I do, I pray specifically for this fellowship, that you will be a, cause us to be a people of, of love and praise and restoration, and not a people who are concerned one iota with how big we are, but instead how much we can love. And God, we do love you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.